Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 400. William, this is fine. This show is ad-free due to member support. And as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent for 400 episodes, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Stephen, Fred, and Keith for signing up already. Feudalism had officially come to England, courtesy of the Normans. And this change didn't have a single thing to do with technology. In fact, technologically speaking, there was no real difference between England and Normandy. All the tools and tricks used to grow food, make goods, travel long distances, all of those were essentially the same in 11th century England and Normandy. The Normans and feudalism had brought change to England, but none of it can really be understood as an advancement. Peasants still worked in the fields using the same tools and techniques. Horses and cattle were still raised, trained, and slaughtered in the same ways. Grain was milled and bread was cooked without any significant advancement. And in those early days, even the fortresses were constructed in pretty much the same way as they had been before the conquest. And that last one probably is a surprise for you, because nowadays the Normans are basically synonymous with stone castles. But in this first stage of the occupation, the Normans were building their fortifications out of wood, just like the English have been doing for ages. The arrival of William and his Normans did bring changes, but they were changes on a purely social level. You'd still have the same work, and you'd still use the same tools to do it, so there's no great leap forward. But the changes that were brought were still profound and difficult. Because your new lord probably didn't speak your language and was likely openly hostile to you and your neighbors and certainly took a much more iron-fisted approach to governance through, in all likelihood, his sheriff. So your life would have been different right away. But there's one more significant area where you, as an average English person, would have felt the change. But it's also an area that doesn't tend to be included in the record. You see, the scribes tended to only talk about a small selection of nobles that they thought were worth mentioning. And usually it was because these nobles were the ones who were paying to be mentioned. Medieval scribes weren't historians. They weren't even journalists. Think of these records as having much more in common with those sappy autobiographies that tend to come out every time someone's about to run for president. And if you were a future historian reading one of those books trying to understand our current era, it would be important for you to know that it wasn't that some politician's family dog was more important than the guy who organized the Amazon Union. It was just that that politician was the one paying for the book to be written. So the dog gets included, and Chris Smalls gets left out. That's essentially the phenomenon that underlies our surviving medieval record. And in our case, the element of society that's often left out is basically everybody. Unless you're a noble with a marquee name, you're unlikely to be mentioned or referenced at all. At best, you might be referred to as the miserable people or something. And this is as true for the Normans as it is for the English. 
which means that if you read the record straight, the Norman Conquest feels a bit like George Lucas's Star Wars, where there only seems to be about 20 people in the entire galaxy, and they're all mysteriously part of the same family. But we know that this wasn't the case, because when William launched Project Seahorse, he brought a lot of people to England with him. Over 10,000 people. And based on the records, they kept coming. Wave after wave of reinforcements were crashing upon English shores to help William occupy and seize the kingdom. That's a lot of men, and they weren't doing it for free. William was promising lands and riches in exchange for their services. And yet, when we look at the records of lands being shoveled out, they only seem to go to a handful of men. But we know that William didn't just come over with a handful of counts and highborn friends. He had knights, men-at-arms, sergeants, foot soldiers, freemen, servants, and they were all still there milling about the country. Remember when the Normans burned Dover and the whole thing got blamed on the low-born commoners that William had with him? You know, soldiers who were so depressingly common that he couldn't even identify them. They all just looked the same to him. Well, those forgettable poors were still expecting to get paid. And there were a lot of them. As I said, over 10,000 of them. So based just on the sheer physics of the thing, and the fact that William wasn't immediately flayed alive by his thousands upon thousands of bloodthirsty, apparently forgettable horse bros, that tells us that a significant amount of land was absolutely being given out to the Norman occupiers. And that must have been given out at every level of society. Which means that you, an average English person, wouldn't just have a new landlord. You'd also have new neighbors and officials and merchants. So suddenly, the conquered English were living elbow to elbow with the occupying Normans. Which raises the question, how was everybody doing with this? Were they getting along? How did they view each other? And the big question for me is how did the Normans who occupied England in that first century view themselves? And I'm using that term deliberately, occupied. I've read numerous scholars describe the people who came across the channel as settlers, discussing how the Normans were settling England. But the word settling carries a subtext of an empty, unclaimed land. But England was already a kingdom made up of homes, farms, estates, and entire shires that were developed and lived on for generations. And these were the lands which were seized and gifted to new owners purely on the basis of that person's membership with the new invading culture. So I disagree with settlement. I think this was an occupation. And if you think this distinction raises some questions about how we use the term settler in other periods of history, I would say it does. Honestly, I think you'll find that settlement is a fairly rare event in history. Occupations and displacements, on the other hand, those are much more common. So, how did the occupying Normans view themselves? Well, that's a complicated question. The term Anglo-Norman gets thrown around rather casually when you're studying this area. And it's thrown around including by the people who balk at the term Anglo-Saxon. However, while we do have Alfred, Edward, and others referring to Anglorum Saxonum, 
we don't have documents declaring that William or his successors were kings of Anglorum Normanum. William didn't describe himself as the king of the English and the Normans. He was the king of England. However, did he and his fellow Normans in England view themselves as English? That's a trickier question. Take, for example, Richard Scrop, the sheriff of Hereford that was mentioned in the previous episode. Based on his name and the timing of his appearance, historians suspect Scrop was a Norman who came over at King Edward's behest in the early 1050s. Probably. Maybe. But we don't know his background for sure. And we definitely don't know how Scrop viewed himself in relation to his neighbors. I mean, presumably he understood that he was a sheriff, but did he see himself as a Norman among the English? An Englishman among his fellows? Did he see his job as Normanizing the new citizens of Normandy who were previously English? We have absolutely no clue. And Sheriff Scrop is someone who actually appears by name in our sources, which is much better than most. And as you may have gathered, our surviving sources don't speak directly about this topic at all. And it's likely that none of the sources ever really did. Instead, historians are forced to try and tease out the subtle cultural tensions out of the subtext of the records, from comments made on other topics. For example, one document that's considered important comes from Orderic Vitalis, writing in the early 12th century. And he tells us that during a siege in France, a group of wealthy Norman nobles and wealthy English nobles were captured. Now, obviously, the wealthy Norman nobles were Norman. They were from Normandy, and they held lands and titles in Normandy. Normans. But Professor Williams points out that the wealthy nobles who were described as English were very likely to also be Normans, or at least very, very recently descended from Normans. Because as the account goes on, it becomes quite clear that Orderic is using the word English for individuals of Norman descent who lacked significant standing in Normandy. They were labeled English because they held English properties and not Norman ones, or at least not a lot of Norman ones. And as such, they were of a lesser rank generally. The use of the term in this way appears to be slightly pejorative. And so it looks like Orderic, writing in the 12th century, saw a difference between the Normans of Normandy and the Normans of England. And apparently, so did the Normans. Because lending weight to this theory we have the Hyde Chronicle, which has a similar distinction, as it speaks of the Normans of England, which, I assume, are distinct from the Normans of Normandy. And so it seems like if you were one of the lucky occupiers who built your fortune in England off English lands, you weren't entirely considered part of the noble Norman club. The Normans appear to be using the term English much in the same way that our current blue bloods use the term new money. And this distinction seems to have made its way out of court as well. The troops in the field during Walleran's rebellion of 1122 used the term English in much the same way, basically mocking the king's forces for being poor, backward bumpkins from England. And they weren't necessarily English by culture or descent per se. It was bad enough just to be associated with England. And actually, Walleran's father, Earl Robert of Leicester, definitely saw a difference between the Normans and the English. Edmer, also writing in the early 12th century, 
tells us explicitly that Earl Robert hated the English and he didn't want any Englishman in a position within the church. And with all this evidence in hand, the words of Poitiers are cast in a new light. You see, he tells us that both the French and the English profited from the king's largesse when he was running around seizing lands and handing them out. And that statement seemed weird, considering that the seized lands were clearly being transferred from the English to the French. And most, if not all of the English who were allowed to keep their lands, were being forced to buy them back at some pretty steep markups. But it's possible that Poitiers was using the term English in the same way that they were using it in Normandy. It looks like if you were a Norman who came over during the reign of Edward the Confessor, your cousins across the channel would talk shit about you by calling you English, regardless of what you or your new English neighbors thought about that. So, at least in the early post-conquest period, for the first generation or two, the matter of English identity was a complex and class-based question. And for the new ruling class, there appears to have been a cultural distinction drawn between the Normans and the English, and also between the Normans in England and the Normans in Normandy. And none of it was particularly flattering to the actual English. But, and I think this part is critical, we are still only talking about a very small subset of the Norman population who came across and occupied England. We're only talking about the people who were of sufficient rank to catch the attention of people like Orderic and Malmesbury. And as such, I suspect that these were also individuals who had a significant incentive to hang on to their Norman heritage, as these were more likely to be figures from pre-existing Norman or even pre-Norman dynasties. So they'd want to hang on to that regardless of whether or not their cousins across the channel saw them as poor yokels. Hell, considering the class-based shade, I wouldn't be surprised if they clung on to their Norman heritage harder just to try and disprove the accusations that were being thrown at them. That wouldn't be the first time that's happened, or the last. But, what about everybody else? What did the medieval 99% think about the English and Englishness in this post-1066 world? That is a much trickier question because the thoughts and views of those people go unrecorded. I mean, if we're not sure how most of the sheriffs, earls, and even kings viewed themselves, how can we know what Ralph the Merc thought of himself, his new farm north of the Channel, or his new neighbors? I'm not sure if we can. Now, one scholarly account I saw argued that the lower-ranked Normans, free from dynastic concerns which plagued the nobility, would have felt free to integrate themselves with their new countrymen. Key to this argument is the reality that intermarriage between occupying Normans and occupied English was probably widespread, as that would be a primary vehicle for Normans of the lower ranks to acquire lands. And so, even if the marriage themselves were likely coerced, within a generation there would be a bunch of minor landholding men who would have at least one English parent almost certainly an English mother. So perhaps for them, that would be enough for them to see themselves as English. But I think that argument is ignoring the class structures and the downward social pressure that's in play. This was a conquest and an occupation. It was the imposition of a new caste system upon England, where the English were being pushed down 
and were ranked lower than the new Norman aristocracy. So we're not talking about someone encountering a culture, thinking it's super cool, and starting to adopt the culture of their new neighbors. We're talking about people who were coming over and attaining social elevation through the very fact that their culture and heritage wasn't English. It was Norman, or at the very least, French. Ralph the Farmer was Ralph the Farmer purely because he crossed the channel with William. Otherwise, he'd still be Ralph the Horse Shoveler. His Norman membership was the reason why he now had peasants in the fields. It was the reason why he was on the social ladder at all. And every inch on that ladder matters, especially if you're scrambling just to stay on it. So would Ralph readily abandon the social advantage that being Norman gave him? I doubt it. Instead, I suspect that in that early period, the first generation or two, Normanness was culturally elevated. It's likely that anyone who had a claim to Normandy found a way to cling on to it, even those of the lower ranks, perhaps especially by those of the lower ranks. And so, just like how Orderic and others give us little tidbits that imply Norman identity, especially a pure Norman identity, became a social currency among the aristocracy, I suspect that was also the case towards the bottom of the social ladder as well. But speaking of that social ladder, it was serious business. And the only thing worse than being called English because you were given a good plot of land in exchange for your service was not getting a good plot of land, but still being called English by your rat bastard peers in court. And that was pretty much the situation that Eustace of Boulogne was finding himself in. Oh, he was given land in exchange for his service at Hastings, but it wasn't the land he wanted. And what you need to know about Eustace was that Eustace was a whole thing. He'd been married to King Edward's sister, God Gifu. He'd been friends with King Edward. In fact, their relationship was so close that Edward was willing to risk throwing all of England into a civil war just to defend Eustace's honor. Do you remember that? When Eustace and his men got into a fight with the people of Dover because they couldn't find a bed and breakfast, and then they got their asses kicked, and Eustace whined to King Edward to do something about it. So Edward, being a terrible king, ordered Godwin to massacre the people of Dover. And when Godwin refused, the king nearly drove England into a civil war. For Eustace. Well, that complicated relationship that Eustace had with England didn't stop there. Do you remember back when Edward was still alive and everyone was trying to find an heir to the throne? Well, Eustace was God Gifu's second husband, and she had a son from her first marriage. This son was named Walter, which meant that Eustace's stepson was a member of the English royal family during a time when England was desperate to find a potential heir. But wouldn't you know it? In 1063, William captured Walter and, whoops, he died in a Norman prison. Bad luck. The whole thing was super shady, but Eustace magnanimously set aside the incredibly suspicious death of his stepson and still agreed to join William on his conquest. And what did the Norman Duke do in response? He insisted that Eustace provide him with hostages to ensure his loyalty. The nerve of this guy. But Eustace set all of that aside, all of it, 
and still took part in the conquest, and even took a nasty blow at the Battle of Hastings after party in the Malfoss. The guy literally was spitting up blood after that fight. So he'd put in his time, but he wasn't doing it for free. He wanted something in return. And the subtext in the record was that he wanted Dover. Yeah, Dover. Despite the fact that he had all kinds of bad blood with Dover, and despite the fact that William and his goons had set Dover on fire during the conquest, and even despite the fact that it probably stank to high heaven due to that whole dysentery outbreak that followed soon thereafter, Eustace wanted Dover. Which shouldn't have been a big deal, because he was Count f***ing Eustace, friend of King Edward and his former brother-in-law. But instead of being given his due, Bishop Odo was given Kent, and Dover Castle was given to Hugh de Montfort. And remember, Eustace had already drugged this kingdom to the brink of civil war over not being able to get a beer in this place. So you can only imagine how he felt now. And Eustace started to make some plans. Meanwhile, to the north, do you remember how William ousted Oswulf, son of Aidwulf, from his position as caretaker of Northumbria? And he replaced him with Copsiga. Now, Poitiers assures us that William did this because Copsiga was a stand-up dude, a regular Mr. Wonderful. And I'm sure that he definitely gave the Normans that impression, because why else would William appoint him as the Earl of Northumbria beyond the Tyne? But knowing how to glad hand with the Normans might get you far in William's court, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get all that far in Northumbria. And Copsiga, it turns out, was one of the worst possible choices William could have made for a Northumbrian earl. This was a guy whose main claim to fame was that he was Tostig's right-hand man. He'd also been driven into exile at least once already and had likely fought at the Battle of Fulford Gate on the side of the Scandinavians. Any one of those things would have made Copsiga uniquely unpopular in the north. And he had the trifecta. Making matters worse, there were also some cultural elements in play. Copsiga was from Yorkshire, and William had appointed him as Earl over the lands north of the Tyne, meaning Old Bernicia, the lands of Old King Ida and the illustrious sons of Ida. And as for the guy that Copsiga was replacing, Ozulf, well, he was from an ancient dynasty that was rooted in Bamburgh. And Bamburgh just happens to be a town that was named after Ida's wife. So William had, in essence, begun his colonization by ousting the local dynasty and replacing them with their ancient rivals. And that would be bad enough, but it actually gets worse. Because this is Northumbria. So of course, there is also, you guessed it, a blood feud. Do you remember back when Tostig held the title of Earl and he popped off and had a thane named Gospatric executed? Well, Cobsiga was almost certainly involved in that murder. And Gospatric, the victim, was Oswulf's kinsman. They are both members of the old dynasty reaching back through Uhtred the Bold. So yeah, now we also have a blood feud. I dare you to find someone who would be more unpopular in the north than Cobsiga. Maybe Thatcher? I don't know, but William's word was law. And so now it was Copsiga who was reigning as Earl of Northumbria beyond the Tyne. 
And that's what he'd been doing for about the last five weeks. And on March 12th, while Earl Copsiga was feasting with his men at an estate in Newburn, an alarm was raised. It seems there were some men outside. A lot of men. Like, so many men. And leading them was Oswulf. Oh, f- But no need to panic. This was Copsiga, the guy who had hitched his wagon to Tostig. And in all those years of endless, pointless feuding and rumors of revenge cannibalism, Tostig's right-hand man had learned a thing or two. He knew what to do. And so Copsiga took one look at this fury of the North bearing down upon him. And he legged it. Screw heroic combat. Screw facing his rival in the field and dealing with this blood feud directly. Screw all of that. No, Kopsiga was going to run. Right into a church and then pray that God saves him. Tostig would have been proud. But here's the thing. Not even God wants to get involved in Northumbrian politics. These people play for keeps and he only has the one son. So divine intervention was not going to come. And instead, by barricading himself in the church, Copsiga had trapped himself. And so Oswulf was able to casually walk up along with his men and set the place on fire. But setting things on fire actually takes a little bit, especially if you don't have easily combustible materials and petroleum-based products on hand. And anyone who's tended a fireplace knows that hardwood, which is likely the sort of wood that you'd want to construct your church out of, takes quite a while to get fully roaring. So Kopsiga and his men would have had plenty of time to contemplate all the steps that landed them in this position. But that also means they had time to devise an escape plan. And so, as the flames were engulfing the church, suddenly Kopsiga and his retainers burst out of the church and were quickly cut down by Oswulf. The blood debt was settled. And one quick beheading of Kopsiga meant that now Oswulf was back in his position as Earl, regardless of what this King William character may have wanted. The whole thing was incredibly Northumbrian. And for William and his Normans, all these English probably looked the same to them. And I have to assume that's why he thought he could install a man from Yorkshire as Earl over the lands north of the Tyne. But England was a kingdom with a rich history built on many cultures. And many of those cultures had grudges that went bone deep. William was a fool for not taking that into account. But speaking about grudges that William should have noticed, back in the South, Eustace was quietly nursing his and waiting for an opportunity. And one day, it finally arrived. Bishop Odo was pressing north across the Thames carrying out William's orders to oppress and occupy the lands that might still present resistance to Norman rule. And so was Hugh de Montfort, which meant that Dover was undefended. This was Eustace's best chance. And William of Jumiege tells us that the Count gathered his men and decided to take the city by surprise. He would attack it from the sea. Now, Hugh de Montfort wasn't an idiot, And he didn't leave Dover entirely undefended. When he went north, he left behind a garrison to defend and hold his castle. And you can only imagine their surprise when, as dawn broke, 
They saw a large number of French soldiers hopping off some ships which had been pulled up onto the beach during the night. And who was that? Were they being led by... Wait, was that Count Eustace? And why were they all running up the hill? And why did they look so angry? Oh Jesus, we're under attack. The garrison did the best they could and they slammed the gates shut while the rest of them manned the castle's defenses which meant that rather than taking the city by storm and by surprise, it would be a siege. That is not great, especially for Eustace. It was only a matter of time before Montfort and Odo would get back, and if he couldn't get into the castle before then, this could end really bad for him. Now, Jumiege tells us that Eustace had a large force with him, but given that he was planning on taking on a frigging fortress at this point, I'm guessing he was probably hoping for some local support to help him break the siege. But this was Dover. And he was Eustace. I dare you to find someone less popular in Dover than Eustace. Thatcher, maybe? So predictably, he received little to no help. And seeing the Count's precarious position, the garrison of Dover Castle decided to swing open the gates and charge out to face the frustrated and overstretched army that Eustace had brought with him. And Eustace didn't stand a chance. Jumiege doesn't give us a lot of details about the fight that followed, but his forces were clearly outmatched. And eventually, Eustace and his men broke. Some fled into the hills surrounding Dover, while Eustace, along with a few of his men, quote, fled cravenly by ship, end quote. The attack had failed, and considering how bad it had gone and how he was just drifting out into the channel all bloodied and battered, you have to wonder what the hell Eustace was thinking when he did this. Well, there is one record that implies that Eustace's rebellion was aligned with the men of Kent, and that the purpose here was to take the throne. And I do love the idea that some of the people of Kent decided to overthrow William or, even better, decided they just wanted to screw over Eustace and trick him into a rebellion. And then once it started, they could grab some popcorn and let him handle it all on his own. I mean, that's just fun. But unfortunately, the account that says that the men of Kent were involved somehow in this was written long after the events. And considering the utter lack of support that he had in Dover and the fact that no contemporary record mentions anything about such a broad coalition, I'm inclined to think that the claims of Kentish involvement here were merely an error. And instead, it's far more likely that Eustace was just being a very stereotypical continental feudal lord. He felt that he was owed a plot of land, and that land had been given to another lord. But if he could take it, then it would be his. You know so long as he could hold it. And so, once his rival was out of town, Eustace took his chance and tried to take what he felt was his. Feudalism created this exact situation constantly. And as such, Eustace's rebellion, like Oswulf's and Adric's, were probably not part of a broad national movement against William. Instead, these all seem to have been local messy affairs driven by circumstances specific to each conflict. True, William certainly does appear to have been the ultimate cause of each conflict, as his actions were kicking up a political and cultural shitstorm that he either didn't care about or was ignorant of. 
but the actual fighting wasn't directly against him. Like I said at the beginning of this episode, feudalism had come to England. But that being said, rebellions rarely begin with a broad national goal. When you see a revolution, the initial sparks that bring down an empire are often unplanned, spontaneous local events, and they're often happening for local reasons. But if enough other local actions take place, it starts to change the perception of what's possible. And that can lead to further actions by other groups. And sometimes, those groups begin to connect and form a common cause. And that is when the power structure has a real problem on its hands. And William had only been out of England for a couple months. And already, there were three separate revolts. One involved a multinational army kicking the hell out of his garrison at Hereford. Another left one of his hand-picked earls dead. And now, even one of his captains from Hastings was leading a rebellion against him. And all of these revolts were led by people who had connections with powerful figures all throughout the kingdom and beyond. Oh, this was going great. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can sign up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Why can't you see?